Welcome back to another episode of the Ecumen. And today we got Brian and Pete in studio here. We're going to go through lesson 17 of the Baltimore Catechism. And we are going to go through the lesson, Honoring the Saints, Relics, and Images. This is going to be a cool episode. So before we get started, I'm going to ask everyone, please subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. We thank you for all of your support, just actually listening in, sharing the videos, and then putting whatever comments in you can. We love educating everyone out there, making sure you all find the truth as it is ava- you know, as it has been made available to us. And uh, yeah, like let's uh, just kick it off here. So honoring the saints relics and images this is an extension of lesson 16 so you guys can go back and uh check out that video uh the the podcast we put together uh, a week ago and look at what we were talking about in terms of worshiping god and i know we started to address this issue there when brian and i were talking about it earlier in that catholics are not worshiping the saints we are not looking at the relics as magical and images are not graven. That's not what we're talking about here. So let's dive into this episode and understand how this complements, but not re- it does not replace the worship of God. So we're at question 214 in the catechism here. Does the first commandment forbid us to honor the saints in heaven? Answer, the first commandment does not forbid us to honor the saints in heaven, provided we do not give them the honor that belongs to God alone. So, we're familiar with this honoring system, the way we treat, well, this day and age. I could have said it consistently, and yes, I'm going to date this episode, so you're welcome. But watching statues get torn down for Washington and Jefferson, those statues were there because we find it okay to honor individuals for their accomplishments and to respect them. And the other word we would use commonly would be venerate those individuals. Now, we're not worshiping, we're not burning incense to them. We don't think that piece of metal or that stone or whatnot is going to come to life and give us some cool stuff like pagans do. Um, we're actually looking at going, it's just a creation. It's just a rock. It's just a piece of metal. And so what we're looking at is a bunch of people who've been elevated into heaven. So, uh, we actually have in the catechism here talking about a saint so we can define it in terms of why we would put these individuals, these people who are now in heaven in the place that we put them. Uh, let's look at this definition here. A saint in the strict sense of the word is a person who is declared officially by the church to be in heaven and who may be publicly venerated. And then veneration paid to the saints uh, in heaven differs essentially from the adoration of God because saints are creatures. God is the creator. So we cannot treat them the same way, no matter how we slice this. So when we look at the creatures themselves, we can look at them and say, man, that person, that guy, that girl did what God asked them to do. And every time that the opportunity came up to sin or to do good, um, by and large, they went along with what God asked them to do. And I would add to this, where does Mary fit? Because I know there are a bunch of people out there who accuse Catholics of worshiping Mary. I've heard this a lot. And they basically accuse us of being pagan and whatever else. No, it's worshiping Christ through Mary. And what's really fun about this is it's the inverse of what Christ did. And when I say that, let's, let me rephrase now. We are worshiping the infinite, the eternal, through a creature who brings us closer to him. And if you flipped it, 
you have the eternal who is going to give us everything, give us eternity and infinity through Mary. So in the end, God wanted to give us everything, but he didn't give it to us directly. He didn't come down on a chariot. There was not a fireworks show. There was not a, you know, TV news special or, the, or whatever other thing you could have possibly imagined in terms of there was no, you know, uh, first century arena where he just shows up and says, everybody show up and honor me. That's not what he did. He shows up to a woman to be born as an infant. He came to us through a creature. And so by proxy, if he, infinity, eternity, God, in all of his glory and majesty and power, says, you know what? The best way I can reach those people is through this creature. We're looking at it now as Catholics, the way that it has been given to us, especially when you look at the apostles and their close association with Mary, like John, we are finding a way to go back through her to Christ. Do we worship her? No. We venerate her. We understand that she is the medium by which we can get closer to Christ because that's how he got to us. So that's her role. She is that mediatrix. So really cool. And in the end, what we're really foot stomping here is we can honor the saints in heaven like Mary, like Joseph, like a whole host of other individuals that we know in scripture are in heaven, whether that be Moses or David, even Adam and Eve have a feast day on the 24th of December, I believe it is. So right before the new Adam is born, the, the feast of the old Adam takes place. So we have that opportunity. This is what I think completes Catholicism as well. Um, by contrast, speaking as a former Protestant, it shows me how lonely Protestantism is. So when your entire belief system, although is claims to be fully Christian, is based on an ideology of protest, um, protest is divisive. It is actually cutting apart a unified organization and saying, I protest whatever this other group is saying. So now we've made that division. And then over the course of the past 500 years, it's only become more and more extreme to the point where Protestants don't associate necessarily with other Protestants, depending on what that denomination is. They then oftentimes, depending on the denomination, will then look at Catholics and be very insulting, derogatory and say, we're not even Christians or they will accuse us of being pagans. Again, further cutting themselves off. And then when we get back to this question 214 in the saints and veneration, they don't understand it at all. And then again, see it as paganism because they don't understand the difference between worship of God, the creator, offering infinity to infinity in the mass, and that that level of adoration and worship is his alone. They can't differentiate that from the way we honor the saints and say, man, good on you. Good on you, St. John Vianney. When you had all these opportunities for things to go wrong, you said, no, I'm going to go do it God's way. And that's cool. And go through, if I can go through St. Philomena or St. Therese or St. Catherine of Siena or St. Alphonsus. We can just keep going saint on saint on saint. And you look at their lives. They're the examples of how to deal with adversity and how to stick to Christ even when things get rough. And when things are good, how not to go off the rails and say, well, I'm good enough. I can just walk away from God. They don't do that. So all of those reasons are the reasons why we would honor them and say, man, we should really do that too. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. I'm just going to circle back to the Blessed Mother. I, so the one thing, as a former Protestant, that I see as a distinct difference now from Catholic life is that we don't disassociate the history and the traditions which were handed down to us. 
Protestants break, they severed, and they moved on, and, and now, as Pete said, have kind of fractured into various different uh, thought patterns on this particular topic, much less uh, a litany of others. But they seem to discount the role of the Blessed Virgin. Christ had his heart pierced by a lance, St. Longinus, you know, while he was on the cross. But that heart that was torn by a spear was formed from the flesh of this woman. That's, I mean, he literally grew his human heart in her womb. As anyone who knows basic biology knows how a baby is, is made and created. Um, this isn't just a woman. This isn't just any other saint, which is why she is elevated above. Because as I believe it was Bishop Sheen once said, uh, you know, it's the, uh, it's the perfect woman because, you know, God got to create his own mother. None of us had a choice in it. We, we just kind of accepted what we got when we showed up on planet earth. Uh, but God got to, to create, you know, the, the perfection that he is deserving of. He is God almighty creator of all things. Why would she be any less perfect than what is expected in the past? But the, the elevation there, you know, of course, I, it's not a, uh, it's not a solemn worshiping, but they're also inconsistent with how they view most of in mm-hmm. Protestants. Oh, yes, 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 absolutely. They're inconsistent uh, in various ways um, theologically, but also with this. I've seen, uh, which America is a very secular slash Protestant country, which doesn't really make sense out loud. But culturally, there's a there used to be at least a lot of this built into the fabric of our society. And I've seen Jefferson, Washington, Adams all get elevated, venerated, and almost worship to a ben certain Franklin. degree. Ben Didn't Franklin, um, you know, how about the astronauts when they first came back? They were they were certainly venerated and, and shuttled around the country. We have statues of Schult- like soldiers, you know, people who actually didn't even hold political office. We're venerating them, but they did great things. We can they all did. admit that, and they're worthy of ad- I won't say adoration to some extent, at least within a, a very narrow focus of their lives. Um, and that's the one thing. So with most people, I used to read biographies, uh, when I was growing up and, and as an adult and a practicing Catholic, I, I learned that most of my quote unquote heroes back in the day are very disappointing to me now because they were cl- clearly very flawed men or in, in some cases, women that just did a thing or two that was worthy of, of that, that veneration, if you will. And before I think, so before we end up getting accused of just making this up or the Catholic church gets accused of making it up, because I'll reiterate what I've said on a handful of episodes before we are not here giving you our opinion from the standpoint of, well, I feel this way. So therefore I'm going to tell all you, no, 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 no. What we're doing is we're actually reading out of the catechism and we're emphasizing and reiterating the positions of the church fathers and of the church doctors and ultimately of the church herself, which is the, position of God. So to emphasize this point, especially here on this question, um, the catechism is helpful enough to throw in two great examples here. So I got Ecclesiasticus. And again, this goes back to problems with uh, the Protestant Bible lacking those seven books that Martin Luther had removed because he followed the Pharisees and not the church, which seems very foolish in retrospect. But regardless, Ecclesiasticus 44.1, let us now praise men of renown and our fathers in their generation. That is literally talking about doing that veneration and honoring. That's good. We're sitting there saying, these people are good examples. At no point would you ever tell your children, so parents out there, would you ever tell them, well, don't do what that what Johnny did when he actually followed the rules. He behaved. He did well in school. 
He excelled when he was given an actual work professional task. And look at him now. He's a professional. He's married. He's got a family. Like, you're not going to be like, no, but don't, don't volunteer. We can't honor him because he's not God. That's, no. That's just not. Tie it back to the saints. So you take a guy or a girl that's completely living a wicked life. Um, They're not heroes by any stretch. And then they turn it around and they claw their way out of the hole they dug and through the scar tissue of sin and everything else made uh, all sorts of reparations and St. Paul. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Probably, uh, the a first great example yeah, of that example. And he starts bad. St. Augustine is another one. Starts as a pagan, practically, and arguing with his uh, mother and totally disagreeing with Christian philosophy. And uh, what is it? I believe uh, Bartolo Longo is a blessed, mm-hmm. and he was a former Satanist. And so you have all these people that, that's the best thing about being Catholic, is that we do not fall to a label our soul my judgment does not fall to a label so any individual out there who can start as i did or brian did as a protestant can come around and do exactly what god wants them to do top to bottom 100 percent of the time and be full unison with god that capacity exists through grace and adherence to the commandments of god cool muslims jews same thing like i can love those people because they have full capacity to sit there and go you know what maybe this isn't the way what does god want me to do and they can turn around and follow jesus christ and be converted and ultimately do everything god wants even satanists and atheists same thing so pagans the whole group of them have the ability if they want at any point in time to come around and join god at that point that's when all of us look at them even good you know like and i can't say good i'm not going to call any person good so let me back up any catholic all of us bad Catholics trying to do what we can to go be good like Christ was can look at all these people who are those miracles, to be perfectly honest. They're miracles of grace that these individuals come out of just the worst situations in society, worst personal and professional and go through all of the different social things that they suffered through and whether it's different cultural groups or false religions or just vice in general, whatever it was. And they come out of it and they're like, no, I'm going to get this straight. And they get on the straight and narrow. We can emulate them. And that's a good thing. And I'm going to go and add the last verse in here again with the Blessed Mother, which is another important one, because we are not making up what Mary is. Mary is the only person in the Bible that I know of other than Christ who actually teaches a prayer. If I remember correctly, at least in the New Testament. I think you're right. The fiat. The Magnificat. Yeah. The Magnificat, she sits there and she utters a prayer and actually says that future generations will call me blessed. And she talks about the greatness of God. And so when you look at that prayer that she utters and she's saying this this uh, set of words, verse, so if you look at Luke 1, verse 48, for behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. So this is Mary talking about herself. So when we talk about her as blessed, we're sitting there and elevating her up and say that no other woman has that status. Eve, the mother of all humanity, does not have that status and even forsook it. By comparison, Mary, we honor her because she actually accepted all the commandments of God. And now we can honor her, venerate her, and all the relics and images. These are all things that actually remind us of her. So, uh, After a few key parts of scripture, you don't hear about her anymore right and so if the last shall be first 
the second she is in heaven after the assumption, you know, why not, you know, elevate her and, and take this perfectly humble creature uh, that's been such a great servant throughout her lifetime and make her, you know, the, the forefront of your saintly, uh, you know, the kingdom, you know, that's, that's uh, tiered by saints of all sorts of levels and, and calibers. Because uh, this is this is not equality, you know. You, it's not communism in heaven. We don't all wear the same crown. Or say comrade, oh, yeah. comrade saint. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Bernie, you lost. There's a hierarchy, and that's why I believe in the Gospel of Matthew. And um, I can't remember the verse. I'll post it though in the comments. They talk about John the Baptist and the greatest in heaven. And when that comment from Jesus is spoken to compliment John the Baptist that should be an indicator to all Christians that there is a hierarchy in heaven. Okay. Now that said, I'm going to be happy if I make it to heaven and I get to be the janitor. That'll be great. I can be the bottom and the last in and overall thrilled that I am not, you know, in the reverse, the counter to heaven. So that'll be great, but that's okay that everyone else is bigger than me at that point. That's okay. That all the angels that were created have more grace than me. That was great that, all the way up to Mary, that Mary, in comparison to my level of grace, is infinite. And that God's grace in comparison to what he allowed Mary to have is infinite. It's beautiful because in the end, it's all glory and extension of God. It's so cool. So I'll happily clean the windows. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be great. So, And the hierarchy is okay. That's a good thing. And that's why we can venerate these people who right now, to be perfectly honest, aren't struggling against sin anymore. They're not being tempted by the devil anymore. They're in the beatific vision. They're looking at God every day. They're talking to him. They won. Yeah. They won. We can celebrate a victory, people. That's what we're doing. We're Christians. We're celebrating Christian victory with these individual souls, and we should be thrilled that they made it and use them as not only examples, but we should be able to offer prayers. And I'm betting we're going to get to that here in a little bit. So let's move on to question 215. Why do we honor the saints in heaven? Now we've covered this answer, but let's read it anyway. We honor the saints in heaven because they practiced great virtue when they were on earth. And because in honoring those who are chosen friends of God, we honor God himself. Now the extension here, we would, I think the, the analogy that I would use is when a king, think of a medieval king, decides that there are vassals or there are knights or what have you that are serving him well he has the authority in his kingship to offer title to these individuals and so he will say so and so you're now knight whatever over this realm so and so you now are earl or duke you are a lord in this own right in this own place and because of your loyalty and because of your prowess, because of your greatness, I will bestow this upon you. Well, God did that for all of the saints. He did it for the angels first and the good angels that stayed still held on and hold to this moment, even now and will forever onto his grace, his title, the authority he gave them, all the capacity and grace, everything. They got it. We should be thrilled about the fact that they've kept it and they're there now to help and to glorify God and extend what he is because he wanted it extended through them. He's like, yeah, I'm infinite, but my infinity has more value when it actually is reaching in through all these different creatures and I can show how great I am because they are doing what I wanted. And when he 
sees them doing what he wanted done. I wanted you to do this good deed for this other person. I wanted you to be charitable and just be quiet whenever that person was being a jerk because it's just the right thing to do. Or I wanted you to speak up when that person was being a jerk and correct them so that other people could learn. And you go through this whole scenario, this whole this array of options that we have sitting before us each and every day when we go to work and we deal with our family and when we look even at the entertainment that we watch or whether we're going to buy something or not buy something, whether we're going to partake in food or drink or what have you, Choice, choice, just choices, choices, choices everywhere. These individuals had all of that laid in front of them and took the right road and died in a state of grace when we're talking about the saints. And from the angel standpoint, when they had the one decision, unlike all the rest of us humans who have a bunch of decisions, these angels had one decision and they made it right. That is worthy in God's eyes, as we can tell, of appointment in heaven. And then we should then take that appointment as an endorsement for us to sit there and say, you guys did a good job and we want to emulate you because you know what? In all fairness, I'm going to bet Brian would agree here. I would be really happy to have that bestowed upon me so I could glorify God forever in a specific role. That's so cool. That is good. It means I'm not going to actually burn in hell forever and deal with demons and murderers and a whole bunch of other cheats and liars. That sounds great by comparison to be in heaven. So we should all be thrilled about it to be, succinct god will not be outdone in generosity and if they wear the crown of victory they were victorious because let's be honest you could really boil all this catechism down to one main point which is this is a spiritual battle uh heaven and hell are the ultimate two end states will end up in and you've got to fight you've got to fight to get there uh heaven will not be handed over to to you uh, simply because you exist or you know, ascend to a thought of, well, I believe in Christ. Well, so does Satan. He believes in Christ. It doesn't put him in heaven any more than we are now as the church militant fighting on earth. So all great victories, uh, all great battles have heroes. And even as a cult, you see, you know, a kind of a, a cloudy glimpse of this just in culture. You know, we elevate our heroes. We, we honor them to a point, but also with our leadership, very rarely do you have a direct line to the president or to you know your congressman. You tend to get through representatives who know them best or have the ability to get to them, uh, which is also why um, if your prayer is just not being met, maybe God has a reason that he wants you to honor his, his victors and, and use them uh, for his glory. Uh, so why not ask St. Paul or St. Augustine or St. Alphonsus to, to relay a message up through the queen to the, the sun. I mean, this all makes sense on earth. Uh, the hierarchy still exists in heaven. Well, and two points here I would add is that when you look at the greatness of an individual, you can tell how much power they have by the size of their retinue, by the size of their staff. The more important a guy or a gal are, the larger the group of people they have working for them to do all the different tasks that they have in their responsibility, their wheelhouse, their areas of uh, focus. What God is doing is showing us, this is my staff. This is my retinue. These are the people I have to glorify me, to take care of all these tasks because I'm God. And I don't have to lift my finger on my own. I have them to do it. I have the help. That is a really cool thing. So we we can see from the standpoint on earth that when you deal with a mayor, the mayor, we're not necessarily going to talk to the mayor. We're going to talk to the secretary. Well, when you talk to you want to go and say, talk to the president, 
You're not going to go talk to the president. You're not even going to talk to the chief of staff. And you're not even going to talk to the his head of staff. You're going to talk to like this other lowly person who's just answering phones. And then you may get a response that's that chain letter kind of thing. Or I may not chain letter, but you know what I mean? The, the form letter. And you're not going to get to talk to the president. It's not going to happen. At least with this situation, when we're talking about Christianity, the Trinity, and the saints. When you talk to the saints, you can guarantee 100% that your prayer, when offered sincerely with all the proper conditions and considerations, you have the capacity that you will be heard in full by God. And God will act on it accordingly. And if God says, eh, I don't, it's not sincere, you're not in the state of grace, all the other things that would warrant him justly to say, no, I'm not going to do anything, he won't. And if it is something that he's going to do, he'll do it whenever it's time for it to be done. The second point I was going to add in terms of what uh, Brian was talking about here, and the cool thing is it builds on that whole thing of we don't call each other comrade in heaven. It's not egalitarian. Everyone's not equal. It's not a, there's God and then all the rest of us are on the same plane. Absolutely not. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 11, so this is Jesus himself talking. He makes the comment, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent bear it away. That's 11.12. Brian had said that you don't just go to heaven because you were just sitting on your bum and you were faithful. No, you have to be violent. You have to be willing to sit there and aggressively fight against the evils, the offenses against God that are here on earth. The preceding verse is the one we talked about before where we sit there and and going back to that egalitarian thing, the anti-egalitarian existence that heaven is. He talks about, this is again, Jesus saying Amen, I say to you, there hath not risen among them that are born of women a greater than John the Baptist, yet he, that is, the lesser in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. That It's awesome. There's multiple levels. We know there's actually like this hierarchy in there, this complementary thing. And I don't think it should surprise us because we are familiar with hierarchies in nature. We're familiar with a food chain. We're familiar with the fact that there are little animals that eat leaves and stuff and there's bigger animals that eat other animals and really we're still at the insect level we could just keep moving up until we have the the human who eats everything else below it that hierarchy that we witness in nature is only a reflection of the hierarchy the perfection of the hierarchy that the divine is created on the spiritual side all of this is there it's really neat just to think about but it's okay to look at these people and say maybe they've done a little bit more than me <laughs> Maybe they have achieved something I didn't achieve. And maybe God put them there because he wanted them there and he has that power and the authority to do so. So all of those are really good considerations as we move forward uh, and think about what it is to not only honor God, but to honor his creation, honor his institutions, honor his declarations. All of this comes with God. So to be perfectly honest, we really should think that it's offensive to God if we deny the appointments he made of his saints. You're not going to deny an earthly Lord the fact that he appointed a Duke and say, I don't care. I don't have to respect you, Duke. You're not my Duke. Like, that's dumb. I don't believe in Dukes. Or if we're going to go and be a little closer for Americans out there, you're not going to sit there and be like, yeah, I get it. You appointed him to the Secretary of Defense. He's not my Secretary of Defense. Whatever, man. I I go right to the president. (laughs) No. No, if, if we're going to sit there and acknowledge the fact that power is what it is, and he has the authority to appoint his people to be in whatever position he wants them, and it just so happens that God has appointed saints, 
it would be in our best interests to honor those saints because God, we're honoring God and his power, his majesty, and his determination that those individuals should be in that position above us. That's so cool. So just a, a thing. Uh, we'll uh, summarize it with humility, everybody. Humility. The more humility you have, the easier this whole thing is to to consume because you can sit there and say, well, God is God and he can do what he's going to do, what he told us he was going to do. And he can appoint saints and that's okay. And he has people who are in charge in every walk of life all over the place. We should not think that heaven would be any different. All right, moving on to question 216. How can we honor the saints? We can honor the saints first by imitating their holy lives. Second, by praying to them. And third, by showing respect to, to their relics and images. Now, that's a lot to unpack. So the cool thing is, again, catechism here, giving us a bunch of scriptural examples. Now, if we look at Fourth uh, Kings, which I believe in the Protestant Bible, is this Second Kings? Yeah, they put three and first and second together, right? There, well, the, I cannot remember what they defined. Mm. It's been a while. Yeah, so basically, Chronicles. There we Chron- go. Okay. First and Second Kings, I believe, follow First and Second Chronicles, if I remember correctly. So in the end, you end up having First and Second Chronicles, then you have First and Second Kings. Wayback machine. <laughs> yeah, I know Protestantism. It somewhat still there. I, I understand where it comes from. Uh, on the Catholic side, though, there is no Chronicles. It's just First through Fourth Kings. So on the Protestant side, I believe, and I, I'll make sure to uh, confirm this here. All right. So thanks for bearing with us here. <laughs> the the fun translating between the Protestant canon, which is honestly made up on the fly based on the fact that they talked to some Pharisees, now the Talmudic or the rabbinical Jews, and that's how they reordered things, which is really odd because that whole Hebrew Bible doesn't even come into existence until the second century as a repackaging of the leftover books that they had from the Septuagint. That's why it's missing the books that they say didn't exist or shouldn't be there, and then ultimately why Luther takes it. So that's the discrepancy we're getting at. But if you're in a looking in a Protestant Bible, this would be Second Kings. But this actually talks about Elisha or Elysius, and it talks about whenever they buried him and the fact that his bones were left over in his grave. Well, the graves oftentimes are going to get used multiple times. Well, if you look at Second Kings or Fourth Kings on the Catholic side, either way, Chapter 13, verse 20, it actually talks about, and I think verse 21 as well, it talks about them actually putting another man into Elisha's grave, and when the man actually touched the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. So this is scripture, guys. This is in the Protestant side and on the Catholic side. This is one of the things that we talk about in terms of relics and why they're a big deal. So we puzzle on that point. So we, just to be clear, this is not the power of the saint. This is God's power working through his saints uh they don't have their own power they're not divine in any respect on their own they're merely creatures that god is using to exalt himself uh because it, they're, it's wonderful you know what they did they were holy and, and god being the ultimate the pinnacle and the center and the focal point of all holiness uh being infinite and divine um why not why not it's his plan we don't have to understand it and so when we look at all of that and we know that these people worked themselves close enough to God where they got rid of the corruption that was there from original sin, they got rid of, and this is with God's grace, they cooperated enough with God's grace to make sure that this would occur, 
they were able to get rid of all the things that would have kept God away from them and all the things that would have let demons and all the bad stuff in. Therefore, they're not just normal creatures or normal things anymore. They would now be the equivalent of being blessed because God's like, yes, you did everything I wanted you to do and I will keep you close to me. Well, in the end, that means these bodies of these individuals who stayed close to God, the rest of their body for the rest of time stays close to God, period. So why wouldn't we want to be close to God, body, blood, soul, and divinity? Again, this is from the Catholic standpoint. We are not Gnostic heretics who see the body is bad and the spirit is good or that we can separate this whole thing out and act like there's different men and different Jesuses and all the other weird stuff that's out there on the Gnostic side. No, body, blood, soul, and divinity is Christ, all told, combined. He went from what he had been from the beginning of time and then with the Holy Ghost and Mary through that miracle attached to himself flesh and blood. So body, blood, soul, and divinity. So he already had soul and divinity from the beginning. What he attached to it was the body and blood. That's Christ now, completely. And that's why Mary is the mother of God, because God decided he wanted flesh and blood. That's a big deal. A saint is also body, blood, and soul. And to be perfectly honest, as Peter told us, we would share in the divinity of Christ if we did everything that he commanded. Because that's what he does. He's God. So these people have now gone and taken their body blood and soul and purified it with God's grace with God's will by combining their will to his submitting to all of his commandments and made this thing their themselves pure and holy that is why then now after they're long dead it remains that way there's no reason God is going to vacate the perfect the the thing that has been purified that he purified himself why would he leave something he did himself that's his work he's going to sit there and try to make sure everyone knows I did that because he's God, and that's okay. So if we acknowledge that, that's why we honor them, the saints. Then we honor their relics, and then the images of them. Well, again, going back to, well, hey, we're not going to look at that, you know, going back to use the Johnny example, he did all these great things. If someone had a picture and be like, man, you could be like him. I don't know, like we have with baseball cards and football cards and how many other different headshots of individuals out there that we want to hold up on some pedestal, and they didn't even do anything for God. Well, by comparison, the saints actually live their entire lives for God. And now from the Catholic standpoint, especially for the people who can't read, that's the gospel of the poor, are the pictures, are the murals, are the mosaics, are the statues. The gospel of the poor, the people who are unable to read, how do they take in and know what Jesus looks like when they can't read about it? Well, they have to listen to someone tell them from the pulpit, or they can go into a Catholic church and see it where it all comes to life and they're like, oh, I get it. That's what he would have looked like. And that's what Mary would have looked like. And here's this whole event, whether we're talking about the visitation or we're talking about the nativity or we're talking about the crucifixion, this all, oh, look at that in a way that words never necessarily could. And for them specifically, there's no way words can actually work for the illiterate. And most of the world being illiterate, this is why we honor their images. Their images are what actually bring us back to them and set the standard that we can actually go Two, because we're looking at these different moments in the saints' lives. In the same way we look at Jesus and, and Mary, Mary's uh, obviously with Christ for a lot of these events. So she gets shown in there. We're supposed to have her humility. We're supposed to have her patience. We're supposed to have her charity. We're supposed to have everything about her generosity and every virtue you could imagine she exhibits as she's following Christ in the Passion. 
Why would we not have pictures of the saints doing these difficult things? We have pictures of saints who are being martyred. We have pictures of saints who are, are there's almost a, what do you want to, I don't want to say a caricature, but idealized. You look at St. George. St. George is martyred. But what is he always depicted as? With the dragon. He's right? always fighting the dragon and he's always saving the princess because in his martyrdom, he refuses to do what the pagan leader had said he was supposed to do and he's going to be martyred. Well, in his act of love for God to stay a Christian and refuse to be pagan, the I believe it's the wife of whoever was actually convicting him, something like yeah. that, actually is converted by this motion and she ends up getting killed as well as St. George. That's why he's always depicted with the princess. And it's just neat. All these pictures are there to tell different parts of the story so we can see the depth of who these people are, where they came from, and how we're supposed to behave. All of this combines together into these individuals who give us a lot of help in seeing what we should do to be better human beings going forward. More Christian human beings, more like Christ. And that whole praying thing, there are multiple verses in scripture where we see jesus commanding people to pray for others who can't we see paul saying pray for me and asking for other prayers we know and i know and brian probably knows too i've been in multiple protestant circles and churches where they're like and we got to pray for this and we got to pray for that well that means we're all believing in intercession (laughs) we all (laughs) believe that someone can get in the middle of my dumb mistakes and pray for me to help me get out of my dumb mistakes and all i'm saying is If I'm going to ask for a prayer, and although I appreciate the prayers of the living, and I would encourage you, if any of you for some reason decide to pray for me, thank you very much for it. I appreciate it dearly. I'm going to also sit there and say, when I'm asking for prayers in my nightly and morning prayers, I'm going to ask for the saints. Because although prayers here are great, and same for my kids, I'm not going to just sit there and be like, no, 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 no. I don't want the kids. I don't want the saints praying for the kids. I just want living people on earth. No, I want living people in heaven praying for my kids. Because there's... in addition to those who are on earth, because the saints are seeing God. Who can God hear more clearly? The people who are right next to him, who watch what's going on on earth, or the people who are down here, who are struggling with sin, fighting against the devil, and have all manner of corruptions and smoke that are actually interfering with our ability to be close to God. That signal is not going to come in as clear as a saint. And so we have to acknowledge this. And so in the same way, even in the Old Testament, there we see there in the book of Job where we talk about Job actually praying for other people and the fact that God prefers his face to others. It, I mean, that's actually in the same vein as James, the book of James, where he, he actually says, God hears the prayers of the just. And it's contrary to the book of uh, John, the gospel of John, where uh, God in the flesh, Jesus says, uh, I can't hear the prayers of sinners. Like, Come on, people. Like, we are sinners here. All of you listening to this know you're sinners. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. Brian's a sinner. All of us. But as much as we can pray for each other, and that's great, and we need all the prayers we can get, do you know what? If the saints pray for me, they've already atoned. They're already in heaven. They're already pure. They have a perfect prayer now because with grace, there's no flaw in it. And they can take any of my prayers and be like, yeah, I know that's really cute there, Pete. You wanted this thing. But I'm gonna. I know what you wanted. Let me just go and ask God directly. Keep trying, I guess. But we'll we'll get that worked out. <laughs> There's a fundamental misunderstanding that Protestants have about what is church. You know, what is the body of Christ? And it also astounds me over the years to see uh, 
how little faith I guess they have in the afterlife. Uh, because if, if there is life eternal and we move on to a place where you are alive, well, then literally they're alive right now. And if we're attached to the same body, uh, why can't we communicate? Now, we say prayer. I think prayer is the, the word chosen over the centuries to express this. But really, you can be conversational. And, and like all people, uh, I believe saints respond better, more favorably, the more of a relationship you have with them. I mean... They, they're perfectly great in charity, right? They're like, oh, hey, guy. Yeah, sure, I'll relay that up to, to God, you know. But but if you if you invoke their help, intercession, protection, guidance every day, uh, and almost become a, you know, like a spiritual child. I mean, there's a few saints that I deeply identify with, their earthly struggles, and kind of hope they adopt me as some, as some you know, poor form of a spiritual child on earth where it's like, hey, I think that... You know, Brian just needs more today. <laughs> he comes with me with these things. But, but Pete nailed it. You know, they know how best to approach God. They see, you know, the beatific vision in front of them. Me, I, I can offer up my my words, however flawed my intention, my heart, my understanding. And like a toddler, maybe I'm asking for something that's just really bad for me. Like, Mom, why won't you give me two pounds of chocolate and a fork for the outlet? You know, <laughs> like, God knows it's not good for me. So, but, you know, when your mother took it away, you'd cry about it, right? Because it's not fair. Yeah, why would Mom do this to me? Like, it's because we lack understanding and, and all of that. So we trust them, you know, as one body in Christ, as one church, you know, attached, you know, grafted onto the vine, so to speak, because I'm a poor Gentile uh, through my baptism. Sure, I can communicate with the rest of my family, the church family that's there, especially the church triumphant. So moving into question 217, kind of builds on 216. When we pray to the saints, what do we ask them to do? Answer, when we pray to the saints, we ask them to offer their prayers to God for us. So I hope Protestants out there, you see the difference in terms of what we're asking them to do versus what we ask God to do. So the only thing a saint can do, I shouldn't say the only, I shouldn't say the only thing, they're a handful, but the focus here is the only things they can do are what God allows them to do. They are completely subservient to God. That's why they're in heaven. They are allowed to pray for us. Sometimes they're allowed to actually come to us and actually talk or whatever. Sometimes they're allowed to defend us or to enable us to do what we needed to do because it was a difficult task. And God said, the only way this is going to happen is St. Teresa needs to get involved here. So, St. Pio needs to get involved here. St. Pius X needs to get involved there. Sometimes that happens. But overall, when we pray, the main thing we're asking them to do, more than anything else, we want them to offer their prayers to God for us. Why? Because it's a petition. This goes back to what Bathsheba did for Solomon in the royal court. She was there to greet those people who came to the court to figure out what they needed and then to help them, to guide them as that interface that intercessor so that well solomon can be pretty picky because didn't he kill one of his brothers yeah yeah towards the end (laughs) good and so uh there's a bunch of weird weirdness going on there or was his son or something i don't remember either way someone people are getting killed the whole point being is that i don't want to be the one getting killed i don't want to be the one who's actually going to get thrown out you know into the cold whenever all i needed was just a little bit help from the king so I can either go directly to him and be like, hey, 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 Solomon, bro, bro, hear me out here. Can I just have some stuff here? It's so bad that I think of Die Hard right here. But 
Hans. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> and then you compare that to, you know what? Instead, maybe I can have humility and go to Bathsheba because she, by contrast to Solomon, has a warm and gentle heart and is charitable and patient and will listen to what I have to say and be like, okay, I see where you're going with that. He would think that request is stupid. However, I see where you're going with it. How about we change it and we do it like this? I'll talk to him and I'll get back to you. This is why there are secretaries throughout the professional world, the political world, everywhere we see secretaries. This is why they're there. This is why we have different arrangements with different relationships with different people. Because some people, uh, when you're looking at God too, God has infinite justice. Does God have the capacity to be merciful, infinitely merciful? Yeah, he does. Um, but the thing is, is that going back to if he's God and we're going to agree he's God, is it more majestic to show that he has the infinite grace and the mercy or is it directly or is it more powerful for him to say, oh yeah, I created a creature who chose to come back to me and watch her do what I gave her the power to do and she's doing it because she wants to. That's how powerful so is that walking softly carrying a big stick? And in this case, the big stick being Mary can actually solve a bunch of problems and will intercede for us. So we're asking for her prayers to God so that God will say, you know what? I see where you're going with that. Let's uh, see if we can help the, you know, Brian and Pete out because they offer prayers or whatnot. So we're not asking them to give us grace from the standpoint of it's their grace. Um, Mary, in terms of the mediatrics of all graces, the only thing she can do is give God's graces which is a really, really big only thing to do. <laughs> but <laughs> infinite, it's not downplay it. <laughs> yeah, It's a big deal. But she's not giving her grace as if she created it. She's giving God's grace that he gave to her to distribute. And we need to acknowledge the fact that God is God. God is a creator. These creatures can only go to the creator and petition that creator for our benefit uh, going forward. So, there's a lot of different concepts here. Please comment if you have questions on it. If we said anything here where you're like, whoa, you did. Yeah, I don't believe with that. Okay, cool. If you don't agree, don't believe it. Tell us so we can then have that discussion and then show you where it is in scripture and the magisterium of the church and actually explain why this actually is the case. Question 218. How do we know that the saints will pray for us? Answer. We know that the saints will pray for us because they are with God and have great love for us. God wants to help us more than anything. The key here is that if we're going to receive that help, we have a bunch of obligations. We can't just sit on our rump, only the violent conquer heaven. Therefore, when we're willing to do what needs to be done so that the saints will hear us, they're hearing us because God wants them to hear us. God wants to hear us. God wants to help us. But again, God is majestic enough to say, no, I got people for that. I'm a big deal enough that I got people for that. Because you can tell the difference between a wealthy and powerful man who has just enough where he's still doing it all himself versus a wealthy and powerful man. That, no, he's got people for that. He's got a whole crew of individuals that are going to take care of that problem because he has that much power that, nope, they'll do it for me. So in this same vein, we know that the saints will pray for us because God wants that for us. And to add on to this too, we also know that Christ commanded the... Christian in general to pray for each other. We know that Paul was asking everyone to pray for each other. Those commandments are not relinquished or given up or forgotten when they reach heaven. Those prayers for others are still going on and they can see us. The uh, saints are gaining 
a bunch of the power that God gives them when they're in heaven through grace and that perfection, they can see what's going on here. They can hear, they can watch. So they're going to follow God's commandments and continue to pray for us because that's what they were commanded to do when they were here in the flesh. Question 219. Why do we honor relics? We honor relics because they are the bodies of the saints or objects connected with the saints or with the Lord. And this is what we talked about with the bones of Elisha. We know that the Israelites, when they left Egypt, were blessing everything. So they had to bless all the instruments that they were using in the offering, the altar, the vestments, in their rituals to worship God. That set of blessings in terms of whether it's holy water or the incense or the offering itself, all of that continued in only the Catholic Church today. And I would consider, even though the Orthodox are in schism, they are actually still under that umbrella. Only the Catholics are actually out there still blessing, still asking God to own and to possess, to purify all of these different things, be it water or salt or candles or clothes or homes or property. Just keep going through the litany. And in the end, after God does that, and that blessing occurs, these things now have to be treated with the reverence that we treat God. Now, do I think that thing's God? No. Does God's grace have an impact on it? Yes. Do demons want to go near it now that he has actually said, that's kind of mine and I want to have it in my way and keep it pure? No, demons don't want anything to do with that. (laughs) They want to get away from God because God judges them. God shows them all their imperfections and how messed up they all are. They can't stand it. They don't like it. So in the end, why do we want blessed items and stuff? Because it keeps demons. They don't want to be around that stuff. Is that magical? No, that's grace. That's not magic. It's grace. So we're not sitting there asking for some incantation. No, we're sitting there saying, Christ, please take possession of this. Own this. In the same way that all of us Catholics, from our lives, our families, our jobs, our possessions, all of our works, all of our sufferings, all of that that we are, should be God's. That's what we're trying to get to. The only way we get perfect is if we give it all to him. Blessing is a way that we can give pieces of them, of what we own specifically to God. It's all his anyway. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) All right. So, uh, oh, and then two, I'm going to give these uh, references again. So again, it's uh, for Catholics, four Kings, 13, 20 to 21. Uh, or Protestants, 2 Kings 13, 20 to 21, and Acts 19, 11 and 12. Those are the two places the catechism actually references the honoring of relics. So make sure you look that up. And there's stuff about blessing too in the Old Testament. So there's a lot of blessing going on. So a lot of the things the Catholics do, as much as Protestants would sit there and say that uh, we're not being Christian, are actually more Christian than not blessing things the way Protestants don't. So question 220, when does the first commandment forbid the making or use of statues and pictures? Oh, here we go. This is good. So again, Catholics getting accused of being a bunch of idolaters. Um, Surprisingly enough, did everyone forget the fact that God actually ordered the Israelites to make statues of angels? Literally happened. So that's in the scripture, even in the Protestant ones. And Protestants, because they don't know any better, unfortunately, would sit there and say, those are graven images? Nah. That gets awkward there, huh? Yeah, a little (laughs) awkward. And then, to be perfectly honest, we go even further and we look at the temple. Because what happened in the temple above where the ark would sit? 
Oh, that's right. You had the giant cherubim that they had in the temple. So you had more statues there of angels. So you have, at that point, no one's in heaven, which it makes total sense why you'd have statues of angels because that's the only thing in heaven. There are no saints yet. They're all down in Sheol. Okay, so what can ancient Hebrews, following this religion given them by God through Moses, like, okay, there you go. Angels are there, but that's not pagan. That's not graven. That's not evil. That's God's commandment that when you see the image of an angel, you might stop to ponder who created that angel and who actually is Lord over that angel. And that angel has more power than me. Therefore, the Lord of that angel is my Lord. And perhaps I should be doing as that angel has done. Hmm. Yes, things to think about. This is why we have images. Images are the things to evoke a bunch of feelings. And for some reason, like everyone looking at modernist artwork, we all agree, we all agree hands down that art, be it a movie or a painting or a, uh, we'll go with a statue or a, a musical piece. They all give us many feelings, many emotions. They evoke imaginative and creative thought processes in our brains. So we go into other places. That's why we watch movies. That's why we listen to music. It's because it actually inspires us. By that same token, that's why we have images of the saints and of these different events in scripture and these different events in history of the church why? Because it's the way we can take ourselves back there and set ourselves in the middle of it. Why is it that Protestants can get totally behind the passion of the Christ, but don't accuse Mel Gibson at all of idolatry? Like, come on, people. You literally have the <laughs> an image there of Jim Caviezel then playing Christ, which is okay from the standpoint of film and him doing it reverently and knowing that we're not worshiping Jim Caviezel. We're worshiping God. Well, by the same token, that was a piece of film that Mel Gibson made to give to us to teach us about God. Well, by the same token, we should be able to look at then a picture or a mosaic or a statue and realize that was given to us by that artist so we could ponder and contemplate the greatness and glory of God. Wasn't there an incident with Moses with the serpents and the snake bites? And You would mention that. Yeah, so uh, the bronze snake, that whenever they were suffering in the desert, and they asked for, what can we do, God, for healing? And he said, craft a bronze serpent and hold it up. Again. Fairly sure it wasn't the bronze that cured them. Or the serpent. Or the serpent. <laughs> yeah. Like, or even Moses, to be perfectly honest. Now, that was God. And why did he do it? Because they were doing as he commanded. So when we stop for a minute and think about, yes, there are multiple images there that God commanded to be made. And guess what? None of them was a golden calf. Okay, the golden calf he was angry about because he's like, you're literally worshiping a piece of metal and acting like this piece of metal is going to make your day. <laughs> Not going to happen, man. <laughs> so, it, and in the end, God's going to be mad versus, no, I'm not saying worship these cherubim. I'm not saying worship the snake. I'm saying, no, that when I give you a commandment and I want you to think about something and look at this a little deeper, I'm going to let you have an image of it and look at it, ponder it, think about it, let it get into your head a bit and then wonder are you as good as the angel? Do you have anything close to the strength of the angel? No. Do you have any of the intelligence of the angel? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> like these, and then the same thing happens with the saints. These saints went through great things. How many of you would be able to sit in there and just hang in there when uh, 
you know, the Roman legionnaire is about ready to gouge your eyes out like St. Lucy and be like, no, nah, I love Christ more gouge away. And it just happens. Or like uh, St. Agatha, 13 year old about ready to be executed. And the executioner holds up because he's like, oh, it's a 13 year old. I don't know if I can do this. And she's like, you're keeping me away from my Lord. Just finish. <laughs> Very few of us would be able to do that at all. And we have to look at those images of those saints and remember they did something that a lot of us could never do, to be perfectly honest. Like if we're going to be absolutely blunt with ourselves and in reality, a lot of us at this moment, if not most of us, the overwhelming majority, 99% of us don't have the strength to do that. Now, could God give us the grace to do it? Sure. Um, but right now, if we're not being challenged, we have no idea whether or not we have it. And those people already exhibited it. So let's make sure that we put them in that place to understand why we would, uh, respect them in a way that, uh, allows statues and pictures to be shown to us. And again, we have to add on to this, the gospel of the poor up until the 1800s, something like 85% of the world population could not read. So that means up until the 1800s, you have 1800 years of the Catholic church where they're teaching the Catholic faith and spreading the Catholic faith through just the pulpit. And whenever the priest is not speaking on the pulpit, what do you leave there as your permanent fixture to end up educating these people? Paintings and statues, these mosaics everywhere to show grandma who can't read and write her ability to go and bring her grandchildren in to say, this is what Jesus looked like. And this is what Mary looked like. And this is what Joseph looked like. And this is the image of how they actually were going to Egypt. We can see there and think about this because otherwise it's really difficult for the kid to put this all into place and understand what it all means. So, statues paintings actually a good thing when we're not worshiping and thinking they're going to do something special for us it's just a picture for us to contemplate to get closer to god that's what we want question 221 is it right to show respect to the statues and pictures of christ and the saints answer it is right to show respect to the statues and pictures of christ and of the saints just as it is right to show respect to the images of those whom we honor and love on earth and again i said this last episode Anyone who's kneeled to pray before a gravestone, we know you're not worshiping the gravestone. But are you being reverent to that person who is no longer here? Yes. And that's okay. As a Christian, we can do that. And as a Protestant, if you're okay with someone doing that, or putting their hand on their heart, or having a moment of silence, then you should be okay with a Catholic being able to go and kneel before a statue and light a candle and then sit there and ask with their prayers, please pray to God for me so that God can help me and give me his grace and help make this thing better. So in the end, those, st those statues and pictures deserve honor because in the end, they're a reflection of a holy thing. So they, in, the, in and of themselves, are... I can't say they're not holy and I can't say that they're necessarily holy. They are holy images from the standpoint of what is on them. But the thing is, is you can do weird stuff with them. They can be wrong. I've seen some really terrible artwork that is actually almost offensive, even though they were trying and it's supposed to be with saints or uh, Christ or people to be honored. So there are ways you, that it's not a hundred percent clean. There are a bunch of people who are doing things that are irreverent that can be, I would say almost graven. If it's glorifying vice, if it's glorifying, 
I'll tie, tie it back to the secular. You know, if I have a picture of my mother. You know, would I rather have a statue or a picture? I'd, well, I'd rather have the picture because it's a, it's a, it's a permanent and definitely her likeness. And keep in mind, twenty centuries of faith is a long time. We have a lot of saints that predate a lot of the technology, so a lot of this is merely representations of their likeness, the best we can get. But I'd rather have the picture. So if you know you keep a image or a relic or a statue of a saint in your home. It is literally a reminder. I see, I have a few of them sitting around the house. It's a reminder to me as I schlub through my day, I get that brief glimpse. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, let me pray for this or let me get right in my head or let me not lose my interior peace or, or whatever. It just helps kind of stay focused and keeps an eye on the prize. But also, if you have a picture of a, of a dear relative or a child, you know, what would you do to keep it safe? display it appropriately properly uh would you misuse it inappropriately or would you leave it outside in the elements yeah i mean all of this is it's pretty common sense and because we we are reverent in our attitude towards these saints um we want to honor them and and their great you know now glory but in their battle uh yeah we're not going to be jerks and misuse it or just be like yeah whatever throw it in the back of the closet it's it's a little irreverent I would say actually sinful. This is where I'm also going to put in a plug, by the way, for hanging images in your house. You want them. And I heard it from uh, one of the guys who helped me in my conversion. And he said, if I would have waited, he's like, I wouldn't have ever put them up because I would have been angry and would have caused more problems. He's like, but because I was in a good mood and I was in a good place, I hung them up. So when I got into a bad mood, and I'm about ready to lose it. And I look up and I see St. Joseph there and go, oh, yeah, St. Joseph never lost his temper like I'm about to. Crap. And then you basically come back from the brink because you're looking at this example of this person who you're like, you know, they took God's grace and did something good with it. That opportunity exists for all of you by putting up images. Have statues in your house. Have images of Christ. And whether that's the crucifix, again, he suffers with us until the end. Because he's got to go and watch all of us fall down multiple times, get harmed. He watches souls get damned. He is suffering with us as we're fighting the devil and fighting ourselves, our nature, fighting the world. He's there with us. So why do we put the cross there? Because that suffering is what we're going through every day. And that's the end state of our lives if we do this right. We have that crucifix there to sit there and be reminded the fact that that's coming for us. We're going to have to go and die for our faith. And if we die in our beds, that's okay to die in our beds for our faith. Um, but you can't just go and phone it in. You have to be ready to die as a martyr. There's all these things that we're sitting there going, can I do that? And to have that reminder, to continue to ask for that strength, crucifix helps. Looking at all the images of love between the Blessed Mother and her son, that's charity. Just as much as the, and, and probably, I would say not as much as the charity that's exhibited on the cross, but a lot of charity and we have all these images that we can go through and all these scenes uh, biblical scenes and whatnot i would say all the images you can possibly have those are good things to have in your house to make sure that you can keep yourself on track moving on to question 222 do we honor christ and the saints when we pray before the crucifix relics and sacred images yes we honor christ and the saints when we pray before the crucifix relics and sacred images because we honor the persons they represent 
we adore Christ and venerate the saints. Again, we know that Christ is not the corpus sitting on that piece of wood that is all shaped like a cross. That piece of metal or stone or marble or whatever he is up there, that that depiction of Christ in his suffering on the cross, we know that's not actually Jesus. Just as much as we know that those pictures of Mary, or those statues of Mary are not actually Mary the saint, just as much as you all know that those pictures of your family members in your home are not actually the person themselves. It's just a depiction. It's a memoriam. It's the way you actually try and keep yourself from a nostalgic standpoint, as well as from a focused standpoint in terms of what you need to do each and every day. So we're honoring them by praying in front of them to help keep focus. I don't know. So I guess that's the other thing I can say I didn't do as a Protestant that I do now as a Catholic. Meditative prayer is not really a Protestant thing. To sit there and say, I'm going to spend hours in prayer. That's my goal. Because as much as I can try to do that as a Catholic, man, the amount of distractions that come up and all the things that start hitting, whether it's myself and my wandering imagination or whether it's external, the amount of challenges, it's unfathomable until it happens to you and you're like, oh, look at that. Those images are awesome ways to revector and get back on track. Because you can sit there and you're trying to pray and something else, you're like, oh yeah, I forgot to pay that one bill. Oh yeah, I forgot to take that one thing. Uh, it's sitting in my lawn. I got to take that inside. You, that stuff, it just keep going through all your, it goes through your head the whole time. Those images help you and you're like, oh, what was I trying to, there it is. Yep. And you're back on point and you can continue down that meditative road. Those distractions are very difficult. And honestly, the images help us in our prayers to actually keep focused on the task at hand. Give a shout out to our Eastern brothers. Uh, they turned me on the icons here over the last uh, year or so. And I have a few icons of various scenes and various saints uh, sitting in the house. And the the scenes are great, as Pete said, to, to kind of revector your mind and, and kind of get that sharp focus again. Because the different scenes and depictions of those scenes are so layered and have so much depth that you can literally just spend. I Okay, so I have a, an iconic scene of the crucifixion. You got the uh, you know the good thief, you know. Then you have the uh, Saint Desmond, then you get the bad thief, and you got Christ in the middle. But underneath, I got stuck on this one piece of the the icon where underneath the cross it has an opening in the dirt, if you will, and just a skull sitting there, which represents Adam. And uh, his traditionally, we we uh, Christ was crucified over the burial site of Adam. So from the new Adam to the old, the blood cleansing, all of it. I'm just like stuck on this for like three straight minutes. And it's like, what a phenomenal way. It's almost like the church fathers in a tradition have a, they knew human nature and they've kind of helped us with this programming. But I, I challenge any of you, especially uh, Protestants, um, try it. It's the toughest five minutes of your life, even trying to focus on these things. And I thought I understood prayer coming into the church, and I clearly didn't have a clue, not even after. I can say, too, it's hard enough to meditate while saying Hail Marys, because at least for me, it gives me something else to do so I can focus on the Hail Mary while I'm focusing on the meditation. But silent prayer for me is super, super hard, and the only way I can end up, like in my, my silent prayers, it ends up having to become almost a dialogue. Like actually asking questions and thinking this all through and making statements. And it's just a back and forth. Um, but otherwise it's always distractions, whether it's the dialogue and silent prayer, which I still think is the hardest 
by far. Um, Teresa of Avila, um, Interior Castle, she talks about all of that and the levels of prayer and how distraction happens all the time. So be prepared for it as you dive into meditative prayer. But Protestants really should consider go to meditative prayer. You're going to find truth in meditative prayer that you never found before. And if you can turn off the world, you can turn off your cell phone, you can turn off the radio, you can turn off the TV, you can get away from the busy street, and you can just find silence. The things you will hear in the silence are very enlightening and usually heavy. You're going to find stuff up, like find things out about yourself that you did not know. And whether that's your weaknesses, whether that's your goals, whether that's Christ's plan for you, things you're going to start to see amazing. But the only way we can get there is by focusing. How do they want us to focus? Well, they provided, conveniently enough, images for us to do just that. So make sure you use, again, as I was saying before, my plug for have statues and have paintings in your home because it helps you to keep focused on your prayers. And the last question for this lesson, do we pray to the crucifix or to the images and relics of the saints? Answer, we do not pray to the crucifix or to the images and relics of the saints, but to the persons they represent. So again, we are not idolaters. Idolatry is a grave sin. It's offensive to God. I don't pray to the statue, hoping the statue does something for me. I don't pray to the painting. No, I'm praying to that living person in heaven because we know from Scripture that our God is the God of the living. That's what he says He is not a God of rocks and metal that do things for us. That's dumb. (laughs) Like we got super immature for humans to (laughs) go that route anyway. But you kind of stepped at it earlier, Pete. You brought up the Hail Mary. Do you want to go back to where that is in scripture and how that is scriptural? And then the rosary as a meditative thing, it's not just vain repetition as we, you know, preached as Protestants, but it is a meditative piece that is centered on the life of Christ through his saints, particularly his mother in this case, um, who had an up-close and personal view, front row seat, if you will, to the life of Christ. Yeah, so if you go look at the Hail Mary, what I'll do is I will link in the description the image that I put together because I had someone else make one, but they had some weird things missing, so I beefed it up a little bit and I threw it onto the blog but it actually gives the actual scriptural verses from whence the Hail Mary originates, which is really kind of cool, all things considered, because it goes into the different aspects that we're supposed to be taking away from, honestly, from scripture, specifically about Mary, because in the end, the more we understand Mary, the more we understand God. Like, She's just the creature. She's just the reflection. This is why we use the analogy of the the moon and the sun. The sun being God and the moon being Mary. Because all of the grace and the light that emanates from the sun. At night, when you see the moon shining, it's only shining because the sun shines. Mary is only who she is with all of the glory and all of the grace and all of the power in heaven. Because God shines upon her to give it to her. And in the end, because he loved her that much, it's just prudent to stick close to someone that God loves so much because we know that God does not love Satan as much as he loves Mary. And if everyone can agree to that out of logic, then you know that God does not love you as much as he loves Mary. So he doesn't love me or any other Catholic or even the Pope 
or whatever, come up with anyone you want, any other saint, no one did he spend nine months in their womb. No one did he subject themselves to for 30 years. And if we're going to go down that road, the other only other person that he subjected himself to for any length of time that's even com- like comparable would be Joseph, whom he at least submitted to in his entirety for 13 years. That means every commandment that Joseph gave him was not sinful because our God will never commit a sin. So you're talking about a father figure, a stepfather who never gave a sinful command to our Lord, which is mind blowing. Cause then you then back that out and then let's go back to where I started. That would mean then that Mary never gave one sinful commandment to our Lord ever 30 years. No parent <laughs> on earth could say, I even did that for five minutes, let alone a week, let alone just keep going for years like the two of them did. And so then going to Mary, why do we put Mary in this place? Because Mary was put there by God for us to see how glorified he was, how majestic he was, how powerful he is. And the verses that we're going to pull out, by the way, the Hail Mary is a combination of four main verses in the Bible, and you can go look them up. So, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. That is Luke one twenty eight. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That's Luke one forty two. Now, Holy Mary, Mother of God, Protestants are going to go and flip their lid right here and go, whoa, 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 she's not the Mother of God. We know she's not the Mother of the Father. She's not the Mother of the holy ghost but because jesus wanted it and he's god she is absolutely mother over his body blood soul and divinity we're not nestorians we can't separate his nature and say that there's a human jesus and a divine jesus there's just jesus and he has body blood soul and divinity miraculously and divinely unified together mary is his mother we take the extension of mary who talks to elizabeth at the visitation, and Elizabeth says, Mother of our Lord. And then we combine that with St. Thomas, the doubter, who actually, after being rebuked by Christ for not believing that he had resurrected, ends up coming around and realizing, this is him, he is resurrected, I'm an idiot, and finally takes it on himself and realizing the error that he'd made, and his response was, my Lord and my God. So my Lord and my God, if we're just going to do a whole logic equation here, it's the same thing. So if Elizabeth can call Mary mother of our Lord, who is also our God, then that means she is absolutely the mother of God. And there is a distinction. She is the daughter of the Father, mother of the Son, and spouse of the Holy Ghost. Because again, that intercourse, that ability to formulate the flesh of Christ only happens between spouses. Because that's the commandments. That's just the way it works. And again, her and uh, Joseph being chased. We can talk about that as well. But that's uh, Numbers 30. If you want to look that up and why that was a a Hebrew thing. Uh, Chaste marriages, that's a thing. Mary had only ever had that intimate relationship with the Holy Ghost. Which is why she is now forever the spouse of the Holy Ghost. So in the end, Mother of God is completely right in line. And I believe it's the which Council of Ephesus. Is there one or two, or is there just the Council of Ephesus? I think it's just the Council of Ephesus. Where they actually talk about it. So 431, they actually go and agree. She is the Theotokos, the God-bearer, and the mother of God. So Luke 143, and the last verse that comes together with uh, the Hail Mary prayer 
is pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. We just went through this lesson heavy on the fact that we can pray for each other, that the saints actually can pray for us. And in the end, we're asking now Mary to continue to pray for us in heaven because she's going to have the most favor with God. So we want her prayers and she'll pray to us, basically pray for us until the end. James 5.16, that verse actually talks about the fact that God hears the prayers of the just and no one is more just, more humble and more powerful than Mary, our mother. And I will put the graphic in there, like I said, to make sure you guys have a link to it. In the end, it gives all the other verses about how we actually relate in the body of Christ and how we pray for each other because it's commandment and how James actually is just building off of that whole concept of the fact that Mary being made full of grace, as Luke 128 says, she doesn't have anything that was going to ever take away from her ability to actually intercede for us and do great things. So we're taking advantage of that because she said we can and because God invites us to do so. So this whole intercession thing is a standard practice that we've seen and with her specifically witnessed first at the marriage at Cana when she intercedes for the wedding guests to sit there and say they're about out of wine and asks Jesus to basically uh, to perform his first public miracle. No one was able to incite Jesus in the same way that Mary was. No one holds the same level of intimacy, that relationship with God like Mary. So hopefully that under, that helped you a little bit with the Hail Mary. Like I said, I'll link it, ask questions, criticisms, whatever. We'll go and answer it. And then the rosary is a stringing of all of that together. It started out as the Marian Psalter. It was 150 Hail Marys in a row with a significance and alignment to the 150 Psalms. So it was called the Marian Psalter. That starts out around 1215 with St. Dominic. So Mary comes to him to visit him. And the Marian Psalter starts there with 150 Hail Marys. And then over time, it is grown and evolved with more prayers, all still solidly Christian, solidly Catholic, so that we now have the ability with the rosary in its traditional form, so that's the 15 decades, to, and that's 15 sets of 10, because we're talking about the 150 correlating to one for every psalm, that now goes through the nativity, uh, the beginning, I should actually go back all the way to the Annunciation, all the way to the coronation of our Blessed Mother as Queen of Heaven and Earth. And we can see all of those 15 mysteries, and actually the coolest part about the Marian Psalter, the, the rosary, is that there are actually meditations for each one of those Hail Marys. So when you're praying and you're putting in, it's going to take you, depending on how you say it, somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour to go through all of it if you're going to do the whole thing. But that's 150 individual meditations that are combined there. And if you want to know something that's also very interesting there too, another correlation. So 150 Psalms, Marian Psalter, 150 Aves, so the Ave Maria, the Latin for Hail Mary. Um when you combine it with the introductory chaplet, because there's uh, petitions for the divine virtues, faith, hope, and charity that's, that kick off the rosary so we can go do the meditations, it totals 153 Aves. So there's 153 Hail Marys in a full rosary. Cool thing is, that's exactly how many fish that Peter pulled out of the sea when Jesus told him to throw out his net. So there's a direct correlation to other verses of Scripture where we should see the truth in it and what it is and us to actually meditate on Jesus's life through his most beloved mother 
that's where we want to be. And if you want an example then of why we would do that, look at St. John, the only apostle that was not martyred, stuck with Mary to the end, through the worst of the worst. And if we do the same thing using Mary as our medium, our mediatrix, and John the evangelist as our example of what it is to be humble and know that we're little and know that we don't have the strength, know that we have to be there with her to go through all these different difficulties, we have a lot of opportunities there. And that's where using the Hail Mary, using the rosary, using the images of the saints and all the saints that are involved, there's a lot we can take away because also I'm going to add in with the Hail Marys uh, and I should say the Aves and the meditations in the rosary. What is really interesting is when you can go through the 150 meditations and I'll try and I'll, I'll link that as well. The number of saints with whom Mary and Jesus cross paths with that are involved in the entire set of meditations and all of them can be asked for intercession. And then you have to wonder how many of them have been. That's crazy. Fault to even contemplate. Because you're going to look at, so you have like the, the Holy Innocence. How many yeah. people ask for the intercession of the Holy Innocence? And that's actually occurring in the fourth decade of the Rosary. You have St. Dismas because according to Anne Catherine Emmerich uh, and between her and uh, uh, Mary of Agreda, them seeing him crossing paths with St. Dismas. You have converts in Heliopolis where they are residing until Herod dies and they go back. You have Saints Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar, the three wise men who would become bishops, saints. Like you just keep going through. It's just person after person after person after person after person. You have St. Zachary, St. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, and John the Baptist. You have all of the apostles. You have Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who help out in the passion. You just keep going and it doesn't stop. In the end, you have then tens, if not hundreds of individuals who are all saints in heaven now, who all can be asked for intercession alongside all the rest of this. These things allow you to understand the depths of Christianity. So why are there statues? Why are there paintings? Why do we have all the saints in here? Because these guys have already done it. And we really should probably follow their example. So I think if you don't have anything else to add. No, it's uh, I, I didn't want to do this lesson without at least touching upon some of the more controversial, at least from a Protestant point of view, uh, I guess, controversy. Uh, Mother of God, I always got as a Protestant as well. I never understood that. That is a triggering landmine. It's like, well, it makes sense. So the, the son is God. Can we agree? Yes. Moving on. <laughs> did, did this woman give birth, natural birth to natural in a heretical sense, like she's screaming in labor, but she, she was the conduit of God coming to earth and assuming a fleshly form. Yeah. And before you pass it over to, I would say the, she did not suffer in birth there because of the, <laughs> we'll open up a whole can of worms and I'll just leave it as a cliffhanger yeah. for all you guys. She suffered actually the pains of birth whenever Christ was on the cross by birthing all of us as her spiritual children. That's where her pain would be suffered. She birthed the church, basically. Yeah. It is a big deal to be mother of God and then ultimately then queen of heaven and earth and then ultimately the, um, yes, the mother of the church, the mother of the mystical body of Christ, the neck to Christ, the head of the body. It's super cool to fathom it all. But I think we'll leave on that note. Thank you all for listening. So another episode down. Make sure that you subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Make sure to ask questions. Get us engaged so we can help you to find anything that you may be missing along the way. And uh, yeah, 
Thank you for listening. We're going to move on to uh, lesson 18 next time. So the second commandment, which is surprisingly very long. And honestly, with nowadays, one of the worst sins that we see is blasphemy. So stay tuned. We will talk to you guys soon. And as always, St. Joseph, pray pray for for us. us.